0: Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. In June, the Progressive Economics 2022 conference, a one-day festival of transformative economic thinking, took place at the University of Greenwich. In a world battered by crises facing environmental collapse, PEF brought together leading thinkers from across the progressive movement to present the arguments and solutions we need to build a radically better economy. Speakers included Gargi Bhattacharya, Arun Bananav, Francesca Breer, James Meadway, Kate Pickett, John McDonnell MP, and David Edgerton, amongst many others. PTO was pleased to be an official media partner of Progressive Economics 2022, and we're posting some of the excellent panel discussions that took place at the event. COVID 19 accelerated the digitization of our economy as more and more activity has moved online. But the technologies we have threaten an uncertain future at best. Unemployment, huge inequalities of wealth and power, and a lack of democratic oversight. What might we expect and what are the alternatives? In this panel discussion, Dahlia Gabriel, Aram Bananav and Ursula Hughes grapple with these questions about our digital future.
1: This is Progressive Economy Forum.
2: This is a recording of the Digital Futures Panel from Progressive Economics 2022, a festival for the future of economics. COVID-19 accelerated the digitalization of our economy as more and more activity has moved online. But the technologies we have threaten an uncertain future at best. Unemployment, huge inequalities of wealth and power and a lack of democratic oversight this session asks what we might expect and what are the alternatives. Ursula Hughes is Professor of Labour and Globalisation at the University of Hertfordshire. She has been carrying out pioneering research on the economic and social impacts of technological change, the restructuring of employment, and the changing international division of labour for many years. She lectures, advises policymakers, and has written numerous books.
3: Well, um, good morning everybody. Um, It's it's nice to be here, to have found my way here with such difficulty. Um, I'm going to uh, do this a little bit upside down and start by making the sort of political points that one might conclude with, but often doesn't have time to conclude with. So I'm going to start with just a couple of things that I have learned the hard way over half a century of being a trade union activist and involved in various other political campaigns. And I think there are three points that we mustn't forget. And one is that it's much better to be campaigning for something than to be campaigning against something. If you're campaigning against something, you're you're often putting yourself on what is often seen by optimistic young people... As the side of losers, you know, my generation have seen the welfare state of the 20th century kind of collapse in all sorts of horrible ways, and our knee-jerk reaction here is to say that which has been privatized, let's renationalize. You know, that which has been cut, let's reinstate. Uh, but it, but that, that, that puts you on the side of the people of what, wanting to turn the clock back, and it's sort of not a good look, especially with, with young voters. <laughs> Um, And the other, I think, important political message is that it's very important – I learnt this the hard way as a trade union organiser back in the 1970s – it's very important to go for something that you can win. Um, once you've won it, people are enthused and convinced and they then go for a bit more and go for a bit more and go for a bit more. But if you go for the unwinnable demand, everybody just ends up being incredibly depressed and dejected and with nowhere to put their energy. So I feel it's politically very, very important to put people's energy into creative things, things that they can do lo- locally, that they can feel ownership of, that they can, um, where where even if they're um, making small gains, they can make incremental gains, they can learn from experience and they can build on that. And I think it's worth remembering that the, the welfare state of the 20th century that a lot of people are so romantic about, but which was actual hell to live in, I tell you, nobody wants to go back to the 1950s. It was just ghastly, homophobic and sexist and racist. I, I won't go into it. But, but the, that the best things about that welfare state were actually built on prefigurative experiments the NHS was built on the incredible achievements of the steel workers and miners of Tradiga in South Wales, where Nye Bevan grew up, who back in the 1880s had formed a, a sort of collective health society, which was so successful that by the 1920s, uh, they had their own hospital, they had their own nurses, they had their own doctors. They um, they extended coverage to the unemployed and to dependents of workers. So 95% of the population was covered by that by the end of the 1930s. It also built on experiments like the Peckham, just up the road from here, the Peckham Health um, Centre, which was a cr- group of GPs who were you know, trying to find... Um, radical ways of developing preventive health and integrating the local community. Anyway, I could go on. And also, I mean, the British Telecom, as we know it, had its origins in local telecoms companies that were set up by at a city level, you know, back in the day before the world was So um, I, I want to encourage everybody to get their minds into, let's put people's energies into doing something creative and positive at a local level and use the technologies we have for public good so I'm now going to whiz into some powerpoint slides if I may Um, uh, if you could skip past this one which just uh, shows my books I think yes forget that one Uh, (laughs) and forget the next one and then if you could go into the next one, this is some research. I'm sorry, it's very small because it was prepared for a European audience, and I did research in 13 countries. And what we're really interested in is the UK. So if you could press the slide again, and again. Oh, no, 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 go back to, uh, what I want is this slide, this slide here, but so that these arrows come up on the left-hand side, right. So, what you can see, we did all these surveys looking at the scale of platform work across Europe, Um, and in the UK, it was a three-year project, we actually had a chance to do two surveys, one in the UK in 2016 and one in 2019. So, as you can see, in just that three-year period between 2016 and 2019, platform work more than doubled, Um, and... um, but more importantly, the kind of algorithmic digital management practices associated with being a platform worker spread much more dramatically. Because if you look, the blue bits are the platform workers. The orange bits are the people who occasionally work on platforms. The grey bits are the people who don't work for online platforms, but who are nevertheless digitally managed. They have to get, they go to an app to find out when the next task is available. They get rated by customers. They get, anyway, there's a bundle of digital apps. So the point is, digital management practices are much, much broader um, than you might think just from reading about Uber and Deliveroo and so on. So it went up in that three-year period from just under 10% of the workforce to over 15% of the workforce in the UK covered by digital apps. Right, next slide. (laughs) The next slide looks in more detail. Um, And this is even harder to read, I'm afraid. But this is, because I'm very interested in social reproduction, in the labour that goes into social reproduction and the crisis of social reproduction. And this, what this slide shows it's only the kind of platforms that deliver household services. It's a very narrow definition of social reproduction because you could argue that Uber, for instance, is part of social reproduction. Deliveroo is part of social reproduction. But this is just looking at like people employing cleaners and uh, gardeners and childcare workers and elder care workers and so on. So as you can see, that more than doubled in three years, um, looking uh, for... The, the, at the UK, from 27 to 5.5% of the population doing this kind of work. Now, look at the people using the platforms. This is people who actually use platforms like that. That went up from 23% in 2016 um, to 31.5% in 2019. But what I really want you to look at is the grey bar. The orange bar is the people who use the platforms – the blue bar is the people who work for the platforms. The grey one is the people who do both. So, this is not a story, as you might guess, about like a, a new precariat servant class doing all this shit work for a kind of bourgeois customers, you know, who are. Go, go, get, who've got their kind of proper jobs, you know, middle class women who get their proper jobs because a migrant worker is doing their childcare and scrubbing their kitchen floors and all that. It's the same people. The, uh, the grey bar is about uh, between 85 and 90% of the people who work for these platforms are actually using them. And what this tells you, that this is an exchange of household services within the working class. We're not just talking about, we're talking about a new way of doing social reproduction. Next slide, please. So this is the story that comes out of it. You've got this terrible, vicious cycle. We've got um, workers who need extra income. All our evidence is that people who work for platforms are doing it on top of another job. Very few of them are doing it as their main job. So they're coming home exhausted from job number one and then working for delivery or whatever it is. So they need extra income, which means they're working longer hours, which means there's less time available for housework. Uh, and, and into that mix you have to add the effects of public spending cuts and you know various other things, which are shrinking of time for housework, um, which creates not just economic hardship, you know, not not, not just. A, sort of like a time crunch in the household but also huge emotional downsides you know people are fighting over who's going to you know, go to the laundromat or and the kids are being <laughs> neglected and relationships are breaking up the time crunch in households has really horrible effects so what do people do in desperation they turn to the market for the services they can't provide for themselves. You're too knackered to cook, so you order a pizza in from Deliveroo, you know. You're, you're, the the cleaning, the, the laundry has piled up and you don't have time to do it. So you get a special offer from somebody to come in and do two hours worth of ironing for you, whatever. So, they're turning to the market for the social reproduction services the state isn't providing and they don't have time to provide for themselves. And that back in the 1950s, the stay at home housewife would have been providing for the breadwinner husband, right? Um, And what that does is it grows the platforms. Um, By growing the platforms, you grow low paid precarious work and create more workers. So, round and round and round this cycle goes. And this cycle is accelerating. Next slide, please. We're nearly there. So this is what's happened since the pandemic. We were able to do another... So Thanks to some support from the TUC, do a, another survey in 2021 to see how the change... What's changed since 2016, um, and, but only in England and Wales. So the numbers are slightly different because the other ones covered Northern Ireland and Scotland as well. Uh, so what you can see here very, very clearly is the increasing that uh, platform work has gone on growing, basically. Uh, Of course, the algorithmic management of people who are not platform workers has also gone on growing, but I won't show you all those slides. Um, uh, The the scale and the frequency have grown. Next slide, please. And um, what you can see is that during the pandemic, not surprisingly, the driving and delivery type work went up rather more, and the household services went down a bit. And of course, during lockdown, you couldn't have cleaners come to your home so much, and so on. So, um, but there's a definite upward trend in all kinds of platform work. Next slide. Um, now, but what's really interesting so you've got more people doing platform work, but the proportion of their income that's being supplied by platform work is actually going down but, and, and we've done a lot of interviews with platform workers and that's because the uh the companies had a very cynical strategy during the pandemic of over-recruiting they over-recruited workers, so workers are spending longer and longer and longer waiting for a job to come in. They're spending longer hours on the street. And we see this in parallel research in Berlin, in Paris, in Barcelona. We looked at seven cities across Europe, the same pattern everywhere. Um, So the, the time pressure has become even greater and is solving the income problem to an even less extent. Next slide, please. Yeah, I know. I'm nearly there. This is the last slide. So what that um, and what that has meant is a masculinization of the workforce because women just do not have the, the enough time in the day, given their other commitments, to hang out on the street waiting for. Right, next slide. Um, right, you can read that. (laughs) So we've basically got a huge intensification of all these things. So platformisation is part of the problem, but could it be part of the solution? And uh, you can put the next slide up, but I know I'm nearly finished. Um, What I think we should be doing... Uh, apart from obviously campa- campaigning for universal rights for all workers so that platform workers are, have got decent um, coverage and campaigning for reform of the tax benefit system to give everybody a basic income at the moment because they're neither seeking work nor in full-time employment. They don't get any benefits, most platform workers. They absolutely fall down the cracks you know, in, in the system. But more importantly, I think what we should be doing is actually building local platforms. This is something you could do in a Labour Council. Municipal platforms, the technology that provides you with the meal that you want for Deliveroo could be providing Meals on Wheels for sick and elderly people. The technology that gets you an Uber could be taking people to their hospital appointments. It could be linking up with public transport in intelligent ways and taking people to local... Nearest station and getting cars off the road. The sort of free scooters and bike schemes and things could actually could actually have them for people like me who really need mobility. You could have mobility scooters. so these kids that come and almost kill you zooming along the pavement. You, know. you could have old ladies like me being able to be independent and not needing taxis. Anyway, I'll stop there. But that's what where I think we should be putting our creative energies is into positive digital services that are attentive to green goals and to you know good food services and things but basically are providing the kind of social reproduction services that we need in the 21st century where we know that women and men are both in the labor market right so I'll end there. thank you
2: Dahlia Gabriel is a writer and researcher at the London School of Economics, studying race and the digital economy. She is the co-author of several books, including Decolonizing the University, 2018, Empire's Endgame, Racism and the British State, 2021, and Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, 2021. She is also a regular contributor at Navarra Media, and her writing can be found in The Guardian, The Times, The Telegraph, and The Independent, amongst others.
1: Hi everyone, and uh, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm so deeply indebted to the work of both Ursula and Aaron, and as a baby researcher, I'm very honoured to be in conversation with both of you. Um, thank you to PEF and to the organisers for putting on this conference, and to University of Greenwich for, for hosting. Um, and the comments I'm going to make today um, draw from my current research on uh, app-based childcare, um, so kind of uh, dovetails quite quite nicely. I think our findings vary in slightly in, in interesting ways, um, and I'm really in, I'd love to like kind of explore those um, findings more in the question and answer. Uh, So as the blurb of this session stated, that when it comes to the digital economy, the COVID-19 pandemic intensified and accelerated a lot of trends that were already in place. Um, And one of these is the increasing embeddedness of digital platforms in the infrastructural fabric of our cities, Um, As breathing, as touch and physical proximity became loaded with, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, a very unknown and intangible amorphous risk, that risk was in large part outsourced to platform workers. Um, So those who live in London will notice that things like platform grocery delivery services absolutely ballooned um, as delivery workers absorbed the risk of, of going to supermarkets Uh, Uber drivers transported key workers, particularly medical staff, to and from hospitals in attempts to avoid crowded public transport. And many of the app-based child workers I've spoken to in the course of my work, uh, because childcare was one of the few instances where you actually could enter someone's home, they talk about a new phenomenon of being hired via platforms to take care of children while the parents attend virtual meetings whilst working from home. So as it stands now, these digital platforms are becoming increasingly central to how our food is delivered, how we get around the city, and how we access care. And the expectation of these services being on demand and at the press of a button um, is becoming ubiquitous part of our major cities. And underpinning that, of course, um, are armies of precarious workers who are constantly plugged into their devices, waiting to be allocated tasks, Uh, Trying to demystify the workings of an opaque algorithm that manages them and anticipating the day that they open their app to find that that algorithm has considered them no longer fit to work.
3: uh, Disconnecting
1: them quite literally from their income. So this platform work is often sold to us as the future of work. Um, The fourth industrial revolution as major consultancy firms love to call it. And thanks to the relentless organizing of platform workers, it's now much more commonly understood that as it stands, this platform work is deeply exploitative. Um, But thanks to the bloated PR budgets of platform companies, that underlying myth of entrepreneurialism and flexibility and being your own boss uh, still pervades, even though, as one worker that I interviewed put it, um, when you're working 12-hour days to make ends meet, there's not much else you can really do with your time, is there? So what future exactly is being sold to us, and how futuristic that is, how different from the past is it really? I think the term digital, in its very general sense, tends to conjure up a lot of different feelings and instincts, um, especially in popular public discourse. It conjures up these ideas of immateriality, of weightlessness, of abundance, of borderlessness, neutrality, and even fairness, and platform companies like Uber capitalise on these assumptions. For example, Ben Jealous, who was the former CEO of the NAACP and partner at Kapoor Capital, which was an early investor <coughs> in Uber, praised what he called ride-sharing companies as a corrective to older forms of interpersonal racism. Uh, in a piece that he wrote called Hailing a Cab While Black, he wrote, quote, ride-sharing companies like Uber and Lyft manage to be both more efficient than traditional taxi services, and also more colorblind. When a driver selects a customer for pickup, he or she is completely blind to whatever that customer looks like or where that customer is going. Using an app, anyone can get a reliable ride whenever and wherever they are. End quote. He also praised the platform with its low barrier of entry and algorithmic management techniques as a form of economic empowerment for workers from heavily diverse neighborhoods. He means black. Um, So efficiency, equality, and empowerment, a win on on all terms, right? I want to sort of tackle this myth of what a digital future looks like on the terms of capitalism, specifically from the angle of race, borders, and empire. Far from neutralizing these dynamics, platform capitalism is deeply invested and reliant upon the differentiation of people and territories into races and nations, sometimes in ways that are novel and unfamiliar, but also in ways that can feel deeply anachronistic. From the minerals mined in Bolivia that go on to make smartphone hardware to assembly lines in Dongguan frantically trying to keep up with the demands of capitalist consumption, from call centers fielding exasperated customer support calls in Manila when chatbots failed, to the racialized and migrant populations, driving cars, delivering late-night takeaways, and caring for children on demand. Digitalizing the economy and maintaining digital economies requires immense amounts of human labor, and how this labor is racially and geographically distributed is not a bug, but a feature. Like previous industrial revolutions, these promises of technological innovation and infrastructural development for citizens of the global north Rest upon invisibilized currents of exploitation and dispossession of racialized populations inside and outside the colonial cause. So, take the platform Bubble, which is a UK and largely London based on demand childcare app. For my research, my research, I've spoken to dozens of Bubble sitters, uh, and many of them are from Latin American countries, particularly Brazil. Um, which is a country that has been on the receiving end of punishing and brutal structural adjustment programs, is shackled with crippling and illegitimate colonial debt, which is hoisted on them by international finance institutions. And these standards of living due to austerity um, and low economic opportunity displaces many young women who make their way to London, where they find themselves in the crosshairs of the hostile environment which makes it almost impossible for them to maintain a consistently regular migration status. And the embedding of immigration enforcement in everyday life makes it incredibly difficult to seek healthcare, to get jobs, to get housing. And until recently, the lack of right-to-work checks and the low barrier of entry means that a lot of them turn to apps like Bubble. Um, And that that lack of right-to-work check is something that Bubble can avoid because they self-define not as employers but as uh, technology service providers many of them looked after siblings and younger cousins back home, and they mention this on their profile to appear trustworthy and family oriented. Many of them tell me that they lean into stereotypes that Brazilian women are warm and affectionate and naturally good at childcare. They start by taking on a few volunteer, i.e. unpaid roles, in order to build up their rating, which you need in order to be trusted on the app. And then they begin charging a starting rate of about £9 an hour, and Bubble then takes a 10% commission off that. They often find themselves being asked to do work that isn't childcare, things like cleaning the house, doing laundry, walking the dog, and obviously the boundaries between these different kinds of work are very porous, Um, but that's where the claim that we can distill these things into tasks and then pay per task kind of leads to work intensification, and a lot of that work happening still but being unpaid. Um, and they struggle to say no, because their rating might go down, or a complaint from a parent can flag them in the app. And as more and more childcare jobs move on to digital platforms, staying on the good side of that algorithm is very important. So as we can see in this typical story of an app-based childcare worker, digital platforms don't neutralize or even weaken the effects of borders, race and gender. The operation of this app relies on the colonial debt regimes that drive people from periphery to metropole, the racist immigration regimes that um, is not in place to reduce migration, um, but rather to increase the proportion of migration that has to happen irregularly, so creating pools of highly exploitable workers. It relies on the gendered expectation that girls have to take on caretaker roles in their families and communities, and on the global care chains that outsource the work of caring for citizens in the North to migrant workers from the South. Some of this is new, um, the algorithm, the form of recruitment, the spatial and temporal politics, but a lot of it is oddly anachronistic. Um, The expectation of on-demandedness, the moving of childcare from nurseries and daycares, which have been crippled by austerity, back into the home um, with hired help, kind of echoes what Saskia Sassen calls the return of the serving classes in global cities like London, uh, classes that are largely made up of immigrant and racialized workers. And so the rise of the platform economy doesn't just sit in a legacy of neoliberal deregulation or technological innovation. When looked through a racial capitalism lens, we can see that it also sits within a tradition of racial labor segmentation, Facilitated by processes of bordering, imperial plunder, and these neocolonial debt regimes. And some of the workers that I um, work with and support the Nanny Solidarity Network, for them, the actual their key demand, you know, their labour organizing strategy is less about kind of worker status and more focused on hostile environment and mutual aid. For them, that is at the heart of their labour struggles. Thank you. Um, and, um, yeah, and so when we think about the digital futures of work that are being offered to us and, of course, the alternative futures that we want to imagine, we need to think, obviously, about things like platform governance, privacy, surveillance, labor law. But we also need to really think about race bordering and empire as creating the context that will determine what a digital future of work will look like. And whether this is in conversations about platform labor and what we do with digital platforms, or if we're talking about abundant visions of renewable infrastructure and a Green New Deal, we have to think about these digital promises as a supply chain and scrutinize what is taking place at each stage of that supply chain. And we have to be careful not to internalize some of those flattening claims of platform companies that offer a weightless, frictionless, which is like one of my favorite words, um, board, borderless, immaterial, and colorblind future. Because essentially, digital capitalism is not so much an innovation of technology as much as it is an innovation of racial capitalism itself. <clears throat>
2: Aaron Benenav is a postdoctoral researcher at the Humboldt University of Berlin and the author of Automation and the Future of Work. He is also an incoming professor of sociology at Syracuse University in New York.
4: Great. Well, I'm really excited to be here. Um, It's my first time in London in many years. Uh, I've lived in Berlin for the past two years, but because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to make it out here. And it's just, you know, it's just a great city, and I'm really glad to that um, that the progressive invited me here to, to speak. Um, I'm going to zoom out a little bit. Um, I think what I'm going to say is going to interact nicely with the other two talks. Um, I'm a little bit sad that Aaron Bastani couldn't make it, because I think we could have had a, an interesting debate. Um, about what's going on. But uh, I'm going to just give you a little overview of some of the main points of the book I recently wrote, Automation and the Future of Work. Um, And the starting point for my talk and and for the book is just that we clearly live in an age of incredible new technologies. I mean, we all carry around smartphones in our pockets that give us access to a wealth of information, to these uh, digital services, and so on. And it's not just the consumer side of these incredible new digital technologies. Obviously, they're also transforming uh, production and regimes of production. Think about the vast global uh, logistics infrastructure, so much of which is now run in an algorithmic way. Think about, um, you know, the advanced uh, robots that we see—not so much, I think, in our everyday life, most of us, but at least, you know, we know that they're there in the Tesla production plants and and elsewhere um, and and you know, they're also affecting all kinds of obviously certain services as well like um, for me living in Germany access to these digital translation software so that I can use my phone like a camera and just to See a German menu translated into English has been, you know, a big change in my life anyway and these changes in technology they, they kind of elicit both excitement and fear about uh, the future, about the possible advent of an automated future. And talk about this automated future was really enhanced by the coronavirus pandemic because this idea that machines, they can't catch or spread diseases, um, nor can computers. And so unlike human beings, these machines are going to kind of proliferate in the context of um, the lockdown. And these kind of claims about the advent of a kind of partly or nearly fully automated future, which we get everywhere, you know, it's constantly being talked about on television, in the media, on, you know, there's books coming out about it every week, it seems, I'm just trying to keep up the literature myself. And given the way our economy is set up, if we really were pressing towards this automated future, one might imagine that would be a nightmare for people because we have to somehow figure out how to still earn wages, how to survive in a capitalist economy. And you know, even while we talk about that, and this is the part of the, what I call the automation discourse that I really like, there's this sense that um, automation could bring about a really beautiful future if we just changed the way our world worked a little bit. Um, people are advocating for universal basic income, which I think is a really, you know, interesting and beautiful idea of a world where no one would um, go hungry, a world where people would have access to uh, the basic goods and services they need, and that this could become the basis, if we really were seeing an automated future, um, of a post-scarcity world, a world where people really didn't have to worry about their survival anymore, and we could you know, as Aaron Bastani says, like we could mine the moon and we could, you know, have all of these incredible technologies that um, would transform our life. And I think these are really interesting ideas to think through. I read a lot of science fiction and utopian literature. And I think trying to envision a better future is a really important um, part of what we do. And I think, you know, having, as Ursula said, a really positive account of the future, something that's inspiring, that's, that's really um, Important, but in order to know whether this is actually happening, we have to look at the data today and try to understand to what extent are we living in an age of um, rapid and even accelerating automation? So a lot of the kind of interest in this that you hear in the media, and I get this all the time when I'm interviewed, a lot of it comes from this one study done and released as a working paper in. in um, in uh, 2013 by these two guys, Frey and Osborne. And what they said was this incredible figure. They said 47% of jobs today, remember this was nine years ago, are going to be automated. They didn't give a time frame for it. They just said, with the technologies we have, 47% of jobs could be automated. An interesting background feature of this uh, this paper is that they actually used machine learning and these other kinds of new automated um, or artificial intelligence tools to, to reach this result. And it just proliferated through the media in a really fascinating way because it spoke to something, right, in the, in the population at large. But in reality, when other researchers went and kind of went over this data and used human intelligence to actually figure out what, uh, what was being automated and what wasn't, what these later researchers did at MIT, at the OECD, these were very big studies, they showed that in reality, only about um, 14% of jobs today are at a high risk of automation in the sense of really replacing human beings uh, with machines and computer algorithms. Most of the other jobs identified by Frey and Osborne were going to see significant changes in how they were carried out, but they weren't actually going to be automated away. They were just going to be partially computerized in some sense. And so, uh, and I'm gonna say a little bit more about that, kind of reaching similar conclusions to the other speakers about how technology is transforming work uh, in a moment. But it is even clear if this uh, degree of automation I've described so far is all that rapid. If 13 or 14% of jobs disappear today, you know, it's not clear that that's a higher rate of automation um, than was true in past historical eras. And that should be really surprising to the automation theorists, that we might not actually live in a particularly rapid era of um, automation. And it should be surprising because a lot of the phenomena that the automation discourse points to really is happening, I think. So we are living in an age of stagnant wages for workers, of rampant and spreading job insecurity uh, for many people, and also, of course, of rising economic inequality. So if if rapid, particularly rapid, automation isn't the explanation uh, for these trends, what is? So I note two two important trends in the economy that I think the automation theorists have missed, but that really define our present era. One of these is almost the opposite of what uh, you hear in the media with all this talk about fancy new computers, machines, futuristic accounts of them doing everything, that trend is what economists call secular stagnation. It's the fact that actually, over the past uh, five decades or so, the economy has just been growing more and more slowly. And actually, the UK is kind of the worst in the pack. It's one of the most stagnant economies. So when you hear all this talk about you know, all of these reforms they're doing and ways they're trying to flexibilize and improve the economy, You should know that as they've done this, the economy has just been growing more and more slowly uh, over time. Um, And this stagnation trend is likely to be made worse by the coronavirus pandemic because it's obviously made for a population with more chronic health conditions. Many people have experienced social and economic dislocation. There's just higher levels of uncertainty about what the future of the economy is, and that has big impacts. On whether and how companies are going to invest. Meanwhile, um, and perhaps you know, more or adding to this uh, stagnation trend, the Chinese economy, which was such a big driver of growth over the past three or four decades, is really slowing down significantly, and that's going to ramify and cause this stagnation trend to really um, become much worse on the global scale. So that's the first trend, the secular stagnation. The second trend that I think is really important is that in response to this stagnation, business leaders everywhere called for changes in the way the economy was run to promote what they would call a better business environment, a better environment for investment. And what that meant is they pushed for lower taxes, they pushed for austerity for social services, they pushed against uh, climate regulations in an era of worsening um, uh, climate change, And they also, of course, pushed for reductions in labor protections and tried to break the backs and did break the backs of um, the union movement and of collective bargaining. And so this political trend kind of overlaid on top of an already worrisome economic trend. These politicians said that by flexibilizing the economy, we were going to get back to an era of growth. But instead, this flexibilization accompanied an ever-worsening slowdown and it made the situation for workers even worse. Um, What we have is not only a slowing economy, but one in which the share of this um, more slowly growing pie that's going to workers is shrinking. And that's really contributed to economic inequality, rising inequality. So explaining the kind of labor market troubles that a lot of people are experiencing today in terms of stagnation primarily rather than in terms of automation helps us see a lot of um, its features. And I'll just mention this because the other speakers I think talked about it much more clearly and, um, and with a lot of great data and ethnographic research. Um, but I think one of the trends we should think about is that Especially in the last 20 or 30 years, one of the main groups experiencing this um, rising inequality is people entering or re-entering the labor market. It's not so much people who had steady jobs losing them, it's rather that um, uh, people who are trying to get jobs for the first time are having incredible trouble finding uh, jobs or finding secure work. Um, Another feature of uh, the economy today, better explained by the stagnation trend, is that a lot of digital technologies aren't being used to automate away labor, but rather to control and intensify the work that workers are doing. And I think Silicon Valley firms have really used the idea of automation to try to direct people's attention away from what's going on you know, behind the curtain where the work is actually happening to say don't worry about these workers, actually these jobs are about to disappear. In fact, they're investing heavily in technologies that assume that these jobs will continue to be around and they're using those technologies um, both to control workers, take information out of their hands and put them in the hands of management and also of course to divide workers and atomize them uh, from one another. And that's likely to get worse over time as employers do everything they can to extract more value from workers through intensification rather than through making big uh, investments in increasing productivity, both because we live in a time of very uncertain economic futures and because the kinds of jobs most people are doing in the service sector are just very hard to automate, very hard to raise their productivity. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that we live in this world because um, you know, the technologies that we're seeing, digital technologies, really could be used to empower people. Here again, I think I'm reiterating what the other speakers said. In, in my research, I'm very interested in this home healthcare workers in uh, the Netherlands. The name of the organization I always mispronounced, but something like Bertsorg. Uh Sorry for my terrible Dutch. But it's, uh, it's an organization of, um, uh, uh, of nurses who are self-managing, and they work in small teams of 10 to 12, and they use a kind of Facebook-like intranet to communicate with one another, to share information about how to treat certain diseases or how to deal with patients with particular problems. And so we could be living in a world where digital technologies are being used really to connect people to one another, to connect workers to one another and improve the flows of information um, between them. Uh, But that would require, of course, a very different approach to research and development and a very different set of incentives, proclivities, desires on the part of... um, owners of uh, workplaces themselves, right? Even if we had better research, if we still lived in a stagnating capitalist economy, those researchers' uh, results would be very unlikely to be implemented. And so, you know, just to wrap up, I wanna return to um, some of the, uh, you know, the more utopian side of this automation story because it's, again, it's the part that really excites me. And I think there's something really important there about the recovery of a positive future. I think if you went back to 100 years, you know, really 100 years was a very revolutionary time, maybe 120 years ago was a kind of exciting time of building on the, on the left and among socialists. And I think if you went back to that era, people really believed that they were building a much better future, that they had, it was something they could really see in their minds and see themselves really enacting together with the people around them. And I think that the automation story provides some of that utopian energy, and it could do it better if we tweak it a little bit. So automation theorists often talk about this dream of post-scarcity as a world beyond want, where we can get anything we want, you know, at the push of the button, uh, without work, without conflict. I think we can get to a world instead, not a world without want, but a world without need. A world in which everyone really has access to all of the basic goods and services that they need to live. That's a realizable dream um, that we can achieve. A world where people really get to experience life not just as the kind of question, what am I going to do to survive? But, you know, what am I going to do with the gift of my life and the time that I have on Earth? I think also we could fight for a world not where there's no work, not where work itself is totally abolished, but a world in which we all work less, right? Where we respond to the slowdown in the economy by uh, by reduction of work time and having more time um, to ourselves, with our friends and families. Uh, And also we could transform the economy not to get rid of work then, but to make the work that we do more fulfilling. How to use technologies to get rid of drudgery Um, and to improve communication, as I said, among workers. So we have, I think, the technologies to do that right now. You know, we actually do have the capacities to get to a world without need, and a world with less work, and a world where we actually get to enjoy the time of our lives. And what I think we can do is when we're, you know, as we are now in a time of incredible, um,
1: you know, maybe not at this
4: instant, but we live in an era of, really amazing revivals of social struggles, social movements, Um, and I expect, maybe I'm wrong, but I really do expect this summer and fall to be a time of really uh, transformative possibilities because I think a lot of people in the world today, after hundreds of millions of people have been pushed into poverty during the pandemic, um, we're now seeing incredibly high uh, food prices and energy prices, and the world feels, to me anyway, like a gigantic powder keg that's about to explode. And the question is, you know, as we're living in this time of uh, heightened um, social struggle and social movements, how to imbue those with a positive vision of uh, transformative change to get to a really better and inspiring future. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this recording from Progressive Economics 2022 a festival for the future of economics. For more information on our upcoming events and to keep up to date with our latest research, visit progressiveeconomyforum.com.